Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you don't know, my name is David Kakish. I am still one of the elders here at Cornerstone Church, if you can believe that. And you may not know this about me, but Jordan McDevitt and I have a, a thing in common. We both enjoy reading nonfiction books about uh, survival stories. I'm talking about like shipwrecks and, and whatever. And there's something amazing about getting this window into how humans behave when they're just removed from society, authority, comforts, and the necessities of life that we take for granted every day. It's just mortals making do in extraordinary circumstances. And I read it going, what is about to happen? And I, I tend to read a fair amount of those books. And I read two in the last few years. Um, and in both stories, the survivors end up on an island, right? And they're both, in, in separate books, they're both pleasantly surprised to find there's a lot of meat on the island. In one story, there's a bunch of rabbits, and in a story, there's a bunch of seals, because they're like in Antarctica or whatever. Uh, and in both stories, they build a stable shelter, they find clean drinking water, right? And uh, they have so many rations of meat that they're stockpiling and saving up for the winter cold months, and they're eating like kings, uh, it's not just measly and just got to get us through. They're, they're eating and they're eating. And yet in both books, within a month, the survival parties, they start to feel nauseous. They start to feel weak. And in both separate stories, they start to have bouts of constant diarrhea. Uh, yes, kids, I, I said diarrhea, uh, sign language. This is diarrhea in case my wife taught me that. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> All right. In the story where they're eating rabbits, some of them eventually start to die. Uh, but in the story where they're eating seals, they figure out what the issue is. They make an adjustment, and in so doing, they save their lives. Do you know what the problem is? It's called rabbit poisoning. Rabbit poisoning, but it's not just for rabbits. Uh, the same is true for animals that live in cold, harsh environment. The issue is there's not enough fat content in the meat. And so even though they're eating and eating, and feel full, they're actually malnourished. As much as they eat, they're eating meat and they're drinking water and they feel content and they don't even realize that they're actually starving to death. Why am I telling you this? Uh, because the word of God is spiritual meat for our souls. And if Sunday sermons are your only serving of the word of God in your diet, in your week, you may not realize it, but you're probably malnourished. And even if you're content and feel full based on a Sunday message and it's rolling around your head all week and you're processing it and thinking, how can I apply this to my life? You may not realize it, but you're probably starving to death. And unless you make an adjustment, like the men on the island, um, there will be catastrophic results. Which is why every year for the last three years, I try to start the year with a sermon to push all of us to make a commitment to be in the Word of God this year to prioritize uh, in the Word of God. And this morning, we're going to camp out in Nehemiah chapter 8. Before we get into it, I don't like to just dive into a text and just make everyone figure out what's happening. So I'm going to set some context on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because they're one book in Hebrew. I'll do it pretty quickly. Uh, and if you're good with that, let's dive right in. You ready? Context. Where we are in 1 Samuel, Saul is about to be appointed as the first king of Israel, the first time they've ever had a king. After him comes David. David uh, is a military genius, and he decimates a lot of Israel's enemies. And after him comes Solomon. And Solomon, uh, he ushers in this golden age for Israel. Peace, prosperity. They construct the temple. It's beautiful. God has a home, and it's amazing. And he's the wisest king in the world. But after Solomon, uh, 
Israel splinters into two. Two factions. The nation is divided, and then they flounder in these cycles of sin for 400 years. They immerse themselves in idolatry, in immorality, and injustice, and to make matters worse, they think that like, having the Lord as their king and having the temple within their borders makes them impervious and untouchable to the world around them. Uh, God and his temple, his nearness is like a rabbit's foot that they can just kind of wave around and think about that would make them succeed. And no one against them will prosper. And you, we'll see that in First Samuel. They're like, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, we'll guaranteed get victory because it's with us. They treated the grace of God like a talisman. Uh, and just because uh, your money says in God we trust on it doesn't make the statement true, right? That's not how it works. And as it keeps going, they become worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, but feel safer than Noah in the ark. And if you don't believe me, uh, Ezekiel 16 kind of picks that up. So how does God respond to this? He responds the same way he does in the book of Judges. He uses foreign nations to discipline his people. He sends Babylon in. They crush the people. They destroy the temple. God thinks, you think the temple's going to save you? And they exile the majority of the nation of Israel to Babylon as prisoner of war. And the people spend 70 years in Babylon. The false prophets, the optimists who shouldn't be like, no, seven years, we'll be back home, everything's going to be good. No, 70 years. And the books of Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and a few other books are written during that time period. And like God promised in Jeremiah 25, he raises up a foreign king who, and God directs him to send his people back home with provisions, with finances, with protection from Cyrus to rebuild the temple, to reinstate uh, Israel's corporate worship, and to rebuild the city, really, the walls and the defenses. And that is so kind. And praise God that he is faithful to his people even when they are faithless. And we're not doing this to pick on Israel. We should see ourselves in this story, right? And it's good news. God is sending them back with provisions, with protection. Uh, he's commissioning them to rebuild everything. This is going to be a turnaround moment for Israel, right? Right? Nope. <laughs> After rebuilding the temple, the people are like so disappointed because it looks so shoddy, particularly when you compare it against Solomon's temple. I mean, those who had seen Solomon's temple look at this new money pit and go, they start to weep is what the text says. What makes matters worse not everyone was exiled to Babylon. There were some that were allowed to stay, the not important people and whatever. They lived in the hill country. When Israel comes back and rebuilds the temple, those people who were not exiled with them, they're told, you don't get to worship here. You're not really a part of us. You're different. You're distinct. You've married other people. You've not had our experiences, all the rest. That's bad. Uh, it gets worse. The priest the leader, Ezra, he comes in and he wants to bring about, God commissions him to do this, to bring about spiritual renewal and social transformation. And by and large, he does. Praise God for that. But, unfortunately, he ends up making some of his own rules on what God wants God's people to be doing. And if they're not doing that, they're unfaithful and they're not. And that doesn't go over super well. And that divides the people even further. That's terrible. Then comes Nehemiah who wants to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, right? To build up defenses from enemies and outsiders and all the rest. And God commands him to do that. But he tells the Israelites who were not exiled with them, they have no place in the city of God. They cannot be a part of Jerusalem. And they loved hearing that, right? That, oh, well, that's okay. No, they're provoked by that. 
And because of it, they antagonize and they sabotage this project of rebuilding the walls at every step of the way. And even when Nehemiah finishes rebuilding the walls, the people of Israel are in the rubble. So at this point, Ezra and Nehemiah, they team up. They call all of Israel together. And in our passage this morning, they host a seven-day Bible conference where they read and explain every word of God's law. And the word of God does what the word of God does best. On hearing and understanding God's word, the people worship God. They're cut to heart. They repent. And this revival of sorts breaks out. It's, it's beautiful. And you would think, you would hope that this revival would be a turning point for Israel. Uh, but it wasn't. The book of Nehemiah ends with the people being unfaithful, the temple being neglected, and Nehemiah is like grabbing people by the beards, beating them, and yelling at them to obey God's word, and then the book ends. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, that's it. So what can we glean from all of this context? Well, let's recap. In Israel, the people assume that the grace of God, the evidence of his graces, are talismans that will protect them from evil. Uh, it didn't. In Babylon, they assume that being back home would fix everything. It didn't. In their own land, they assume rebuilding the temple would fix everything. It didn't. They assume moral and cultural transformation would fix everything. It didn't. They assume strong political leaders rebuilding the country and the defenses would fix everything. Guess what? It didn't. And C.S. Lewis was right to say this. Human history... It's the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And we see that there. And like the survivors on the island, Israel seemingly had everything that they needed to succeed. Like the survivors on the island, Israel kept eating and eating, thinking and feeling full when actually they were starving to death. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that combined book, it starts out with hope, but it ends in disappointment. Uh, and one commentator says it like this, Ezra and Nehemiah tried their best, but their legalistic, political, and social reforms among the people didn't address the core issue, which was the heart. It, it didn't address the heart, not really. The seven-day Bible conference was really a good start, uh, but you can't live a lifetime on seven days of meals, yeah? Uh, and what God's people needed to flourish, it wasn't a temple, it wasn't made-up rules disguised as God's truth, it wasn't robust protection from outside enemies. What God's people ultimately needed were transformed hearts. That's what they needed, and only then could they really flourish by loving God and neighbor. And I don't want us to fall into the same trap. Uh, we heard in Hannah's song that God exalts and God brings low, and it's not by strength that one prevails. So economic growth, reasonable politicians, a virtuous culture, spiritual mountaintops that we might get at a weekend retreat, um, those won't transform our hearts because they can't. Not really. Only God can do that, and the Holy Spirit does that work primarily through his word. Enough preamble. You got the recap? If you have your Bible, open up to Nehemiah 8, and over the next two weeks, two weeks, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. Uh, we'll do one point today. I'll wrap it up next week. Just so you know where we're going, here's our roadmap. Three points. Hearing the word. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 6 is point 1. Point 2, understanding the word. Nehemiah 8, verses 7 through 8. And then number three, responding to the word, Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12. We'll start with our first and only point for today, hearing the, ver uh, hearing the word, verses 1 through 6. We'll read it together, and then we're going to move verse by verse through those and, and explain it. So hear the word of the Lord. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. 
And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had committed Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verses 4 through 6, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. Uh, here comes the name section. Y'all pray for me. Uh, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padaiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. You're welcome. <laughs> and Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Uh, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. For a nation that was uh, constantly plagued by division, by rivalries, and violence, the fact that they were able to gather as one unified person, as one man, is kind of a miracle in and of itself. And it's one I think a lot of us would hope for in our own country. Like, oh man, if we could just be together, if we could just be united. If people weren't so angry at each other. And the song Imagine by John Lennon longed for that too, right? Imagine all the people living life in peace. Everybody just getting along, coexist. That's the dream, right? In some senses, yes. Uh, but peace and unity on their own are not necessarily virtuous. Peace and unity on their own are not necessarily virtuous. What I'm telling you is Satan and his demons have peace with each other, and they're unified in their purpose. Jesus says as much when the Pharisees accuse him of casting out a demon by the power of Satan. What does he say? How can Satan drive out Satan? And if Satan is divided and rises against himself, he can't stand. Mark 3, 23 through 26. What you're saying doesn't make sense. Why would Satan attack himself? No, he has to be unified in purpose. If he was divided against himself, there would be no spiritual warfare. What I'm saying is that on their own, peace and unity are not virtuous, and they're not the goal of the church. Not really, peace and unity. Peace and unity are only beautiful. Peace and unity are only virtuous. Peace and unity are only pleasing to God when they are the result of God's work in our hearts. When it's the fruit of what's happening here and here in verse 1, the people are unified as one, but that's not the point. Look what brought them together, the book of the law of Moses. The people are unified by a specific desire. Their unity is built on a shared goal. You know what it is? They want to hear and submit to the word of the Lord over their lives. And may that be true in our congregation as well. Um, I pray for our peace and unity daily. I really do. And more than that, though, I pray that our unity is built on a shared goal. Um, a shared goal of hearing and submitting to God's word over our, all of our lives together. That's what I, I pray for. And uh, in verse 1, we see the people tell Ezra, the priest of Israel, they want God's word. Bring out the book. They want the word of the Lord, not news, not cultural or political commentary, not feel-good aphorisms, not man-made rules for the good life. They want the words of life and nothing else. And the people tell the priest, bring us the book. And I want you to see in verses 1 through 12, 
while Ezra, the Levites, and Nehemiah, and all the other leaders, they have a role to play in all of this. Um, it's the people who dominate these verses. Don't believe me. The word people occurs 13 times in these 12 verses. Nine of those instances, all the people. The people did this. The people did this. All the people did this. And that fact leads most commentators to say this. The most important character in this section is the people. Uh, the priests, the Levites, the leaders, they all have a function. And it's this, the purpose of reading and explaining the word of God. But that's it. The spiritual leaders are just the stagehands, really. You're not even really supposed to see them. They're kind of closing the curtain and setting this. They're just there to read and explain what the word says. But the star of this show is the people. And what does that mean for us? Well, I think most Christians really do long for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. Good. Great. That's what we're supposed to long for. But in their longing, they look to pastors and authors and spiritual leaders to pave this way for a revival to break out in our country, in the world. But this text shows us that the initiative for spiritual revival, the initiative for spiritual renewal begins with you, the people. Wanting, demanding, listening, and obeying God's word. I'm just a stagehand. The elders are just a stagehand. Um, and Israel had lost their way, relying on their own wisdom. They'd lost their way trying to prevail in their own strength. They lost their way doing what seemed right in their own eyes. Whatever they felt like doing, they were doing, and it didn't work out well for them. And they know that, and they're eating that, and they feel that, and so they know the only answer. They know that God's word is a lamp to their feet and a light into their path, and they know that the only path to flourishing is found in God's wisdom. So the people tell Ezra, bring us the book of the law of Moses. Tell us what God's commands on our life are, and we want to obey it. And, and that's the way. And if you're going to hear the word of the Lord this year, you have to want to hear the word of the Lord this year. You have to desire it, and, and you, you have to demand it, and you have to not settle for anything less than that. Okay? That's verse 1. Verse 2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Ezra brings out the book of the law, and before he reads it, God tells us something in this verse. He tells us who his word is for. Who is God's word for? It's not reserved for the men. It's not reserved for the moral. It's not reserved for the priests or the pious. It's for the men and women and all who could understand, i.e. the children. In short, God's word is for everyone. And it's meant to be equally known, enjoyed, and applied by all people. So, whether you're 5 or 50, black or white, rich or poor, man or woman, as you pick up your Bible tomorrow morning, I challenge you to begin your reading with this prayer. God, this is your word to me. God, this is your word to me. Speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. Try it. It sets a mindset. It sets a frame of listening. Um, but not only should God's word be accessible by all people, there's a key phrase in this verse, all who understand what they heard. God doesn't want ritualism. He's not impressed how many verses you memorize. He's impressed how many verses you obey. He doesn't want ritualism. He doesn't want rote repetition. You know the moves. You did the things. In fact, in Amos 5, he tells Israel, I hate your hollow religion. I hate it. Verse 2 tells us that he wants his people, men, women, and children, to not only know what his word says, he wants them to understand what it means. And we're going to pick up on that next week in, in point 2. Um, so let's keep moving. Verse 3. 
And he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. For at least six hours straight, Ezra reads the word of God to the people of God. For at least six hours straight, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I'm not going to make a point about how long my sermons are. There's a really cheap, low-hanging fruit uh, sermon joke there. Uh, But to recap, the people demanded the word, right? And then the people listened to the word of God. They gathered to hear God's commands, what he demanded from their lives, and they weren't just listening. They were hearing. They were really hearing. Uh, Their ears were, were told, attentive to the word. That means that as they listened to the Lord of all creation, giving his marching orders to all people, not just his people, the whole world, he's giving his marching orders, they heard him carefully. They're readying their hearts to receive and obey those words. And we'll get into this more in point three next week. But for now, I just want to highlight that hearing the word of God involves inviting the Holy Spirit to search and till the hard ground of our hearts and breaking it up so that the seeds of truth can make their ways deep inside and take root. And by his spirit, through his people, in the word, in prayer, God waters it and it would grow and bear much fruit, a hundredfold. Um, that's what has to happen. And in the pages of Scripture, our sinful hearts come face to face with the Lion of Judah. And the Lion of Judah has an insatiable appetite. And I, I told you guys this last year, but when we read the Bible, with that picture in mind, our sinful hearts and the Lion of Judah, um, it kind of turns the tables, at least for me, on how I typically read the Scriptures. Uh, because I'm no longer sitting in my cozy kitchen with my luxury pleather Bible, just skimming over a few verses, hoping for something to pop out to take away with me for the day and go, yeah, I did it, I read, and I remember that one verse. When we read the scriptures with that picture in mind, uh, our sinful hearts encountering the Lion of Judah with an insatiable appetite, in that moment we see ourselves as a speck of dust in the grand scheme of eternity, handling the very words of life spoken uh, from the holy God who created the entire world that we're living and breathing in. And at that moment, for me at least, I realized we don't read the scriptures. The scriptures read us. I'm not over this book and going, do I agree with that? And what do I think? That's a good one. I'll try to squeeze that into my already full heart and maybe it'll go. No, 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 no. This text is over me. Every word is over me, and I feel it, and I see it, and I hear it. And now when I flip open my Bible and begin to read, my eyes are immediately drawn at the hungry lion. Yeah? And I stare at him. And when we read the scriptures, we hear the Holy Spirit declare the things of God with a mighty roar. We watch in terror as he feasts on our sinful flesh, and we're slowly dying to ourselves. And only then, with the carnage of all of my sins splattered around my, you know, once tidy kitchen, only then with my soul just sprawled out on the floor, dead, the lion returns. But this time, with grace and kindness and with incredible delicacy for such a menacing beast, he gently breathes the breath of life back into my corpse, and behold, I am resurrected every time. Before I read the scriptures, I really try to pray this. God, this is your word to me. Speak, your servant is listening. 
please slay me with your sword of truth so that I can truly live. And I would invite you to pray that way, but be careful. That kind of reading is not for the faint of heart. I'm not saying it's reserved for the spiritual elite. I'm telling you, it's not fun to die to yourself, uh, but it's joy unspeakable to truly live. So uh, here be warned. In Nehemiah 8, the ears of the people are attentive. They want to hear the word of God. And in verse 4, as the scribes stood up on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and I can read you the names again, but that does no one no good. There's 13 men with them. And Ezra reads God's word from the stage that was large enough to accommodate all his 13 helpers. And maybe this was to make sure everyone could see him, right? He's above the people that can see him. Maybe this was to uh, amplify the sound of his voice. Maybe this was both. Really, uh, I'm not super concerned with that right now. I don't want us to be distracted by the platform or who is on the stage. I'm not sure that's the point. What I want us to focus on is the fact that they made that platform when? Before the event. The platform was constructed beforehand. And what that means is that even before the event, they took the time to consider the space. They took the time to figure out the best way to conduct this service. They drew up plans for a platform. They gathered supplies. They built it. They got a group together. They moved it and centered it in the perfect place to ensure that everyone could see and hear. Um, point being, hearing the word requires preparation and planning. Hearing the word of God requires preparation and planning. And if you're wanting to embark on hearing God's word this next year, it will require preparation and planning on your part too. Um, I'm trying to tell you is that our flesh never wants to be confronted by the sword of the spirit. It doesn't. It knows it's going to die. Our flesh never wants to be confronted by the sword of the spirit. Our flesh will come up with 10,000 reasons why today just doesn't work. 10,000, today just doesn't work. And 10,000 assurances why tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow. I mean, today, but tomorrow, tomorrow I will. Uh, our calendars, our circumstances, our never-ending to-do lists will never lend themselves to attentive hearing of the Word of God. Never. Hearing God's Word is a choice. Nobody drifts into holiness. Um, no one becomes holy by accident. We don't drift into holiness. We drift into sin. you got to drive into holiness. Put your hands on the wheel, know where you're going, start that car and go. Uh, and if we want God's Word to be a priority in our lives, we will have to make it a priority in our life by preparing and planning a way for that to happen. Yeah? Uh, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened the book, all the people stood. Quick story. Um, I had this vivid childhood memory. I was a kid. My parents invited people over for dinner. Uh, I'm watching... I'm sitting on the couch, I'm watching G.I. Joe's or, or some other cartoon. Guests rang the doorbell, parents opened the door, let them in. They're walking into the living room. I turned around from the couch and said, hi. Um, seemingly forgettable story, I remember it forever. You know why? Because, whoo, boy, did I get a spanking for that. Ooh, I got tore up. I remember I showed you guys a picture of the family paddle and carved on the back. Dave was here. That was one of them. I got a lot of spankings. I remember that one. And I remember being so confused. Yeah, I'm crying. Why? What did I do? <laughs> And my mom explained this to me. She said, by not standing to greet our company, I disrespected them and communicated to them that I was indifferent about their presence in our house. By not standing to greet our guests, she said, I disrespected them and communicated that I was indifferent to their presence in our house. And I get it. Uh, I come from an Arabic background. Maybe you don't. And maybe that sounds like an alien thought or idea to you. So if it is, let me bridge the cultures. I dare you to try the same thing in a courtroom. 
when the judge arrives and the bailiff says, all rise, I dare you. Stay seated, look up from your phone and go, hi, <laughs> and go back to your screen. Hi. Yep. Tell me what, how that works out for you. It's, it's the same principle there. And verses 5 and 6 are a summary of all that has transpired so far. Ezra uh, unrolls the scroll of God's word from the stage. The people stand in reverence. They stood as a sign of respect. And you know why? Um, because standing for them conveyed that in the hearing of God's word, God was present. And by standing, they're acknowledging that God is there um, and that they're ready to submit to his commands and obey it and submit to his authority. Um, and what's unbelievably beautiful about this scene is that they're standing for the reading of the word in so doing. Um, this group of people, I, t- I told you that history, the context, how we got here, this group of people who had for centuries centered their identity on their nationality, their king, their prosperity, their military might, the fact that they had the temple. They had centered their identity on so many other things in this moment. By standing for the reading of the word of God, they redefined themselves. Uh, They really did. I'm not exaggerating. One commentator puts it like this. Giving the word of God this, he says, royal reception would prove to be a turning point for Israel. From now on, this is true, in history, both inside and outside. From now on, the Jews would be predominantly referred to as the people of the book. The people of the book. The focus wasn't on a wooden platform or who was on the stage. The focus was on the scroll. More importantly, what was written on the scroll and who was speaking through the scroll. And at the reading of the words, it brought the people to their feet. Uh, And gosh, y'all, my heart's desire uh, for our church is for that to be our reputation more than anything else. Uh, May our posture and hearing of the word of God, um, may that be the thing that people identify us as. They're people of the book. Um, I'd love to be known for that. I really would. Now, I'm not saying people will like or appreciate what we think and say and do. I get that, but let them at least go, it's in their book. At least that way, their problem is with God and not with us. And I'm okay with that, because God can fend for himself. Um, Ezra unrolls the scroll. The people stand in reverence and readiness to hear. And verse 6 tells us this. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God. He offers a benediction, a good word for God. I thought about this week. I mean, I, I get God blessing us. We bless him. Does that work? When God blesses us, right? We receive uh, grace and help and comfort, right? Uh, we receive strength. When God blesses us, when we bless him, what does he gain? Nothing. God gains nothing except joy. We give God joy. Um, I keep a little note on my desk that Kaya (laughs) wrote for me. She's four, and it says, I love you, Dad, so much. And the handwriting is terrible, the grammar is abhorrent, and it gives me joy every time I see it. It doesn't have to be Shakespearean. It didn't have to be incursive. I understood what she means. It gives me nothing but joy. And in love, God literally moved heaven and earth. More than that, he died on the cross on our behalf. He was raised from the dead on our behalf. He calls us home. He proves his love for us over and over again. And when we bless him for it, it brings him joy that we can see and understand not just how great he is, 
but how much he loves us. Uh, it brings him joy. And as Ezra blesses God for his goodness, the people lifted their hands saying, yes, 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 you are God. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Their hands are lifted. We're told they bow their heads and then they uh, worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. I call this first point, hearing the word because God is first and foremost a speaking God. And therefore, we must first and foremost be a hearing people. We need to speak, but only as we've been spoken to. We need to do, but only as we've been told to do. Unless we hear, the rest of the project is going all downhill. And while the heavens declare the glory of God and God can speak through a cloud, through fire, and even a donkey, yes, that can happen. The normative and most reliable way that God speaks to his people is in and through his word. So if you're not in his word, uh, you're not hearing him. I can tell you that. When we walk through this passage quickly, we see that hearing requires more than just our ears, right? Look through the passage again, you'll see they stand in reverence for the God who speaks through his word. They speak, amen, amen, in agreement with Ezra's praises. They raise their hands, showing their neediness and dependence on God. Go to a, you know, what do we call it now? Not third world countries. A developing nation is the politically correct way. And, and watch, people stretching out their arms, neediness, dependent. They stretch out their arms to God, only you. They prostrate themselves to show humility in the face of God's greatness. And then their ears are attentive. Uh, hanging on, ready to receive the life-giving words of the king of the cosmos because they know they have no help from any part from there. And all this leads one commentator to say this. Uh, worship for the people here was not just a mental exercise. It does involve our minds, but it's not strictly. It's not just a mental exercise. It involved the whole worshiper who stood and spoke and kneeled in humility before God. Uh, I've said this tons of times before, we are embodied beings, a composite of body and soul that are symbiotically, inextricably linked. What happens to my soul affects my body. What happens to my body affects my soul. That is true. And if that's true, uh, this is also true. What we do with one, our body, our soul, reflects or affects the other. What I do with my soul affects my body. And what I do with my body, it affects my soul. Uh, it does. So when I love my wife so much, I mean, it's God. And then like, I'm ashamed to tell you, close second, Ash. It shouldn't be so close. I'm confessing that. I love my wife. And when Ash speaks to me, I stop what I'm doing to show her that she has my undivided attention. How much more so should I do that when God speaks to me? When Ash speaks to me, I put my phone down to make eye contact with her to show her I'm listening. How much more should I do so when God is speaking to me? When Ash speaks to me, I quiet the distractions that would otherwise keep me from hearing her, whether it's muting the TV or ignoring the buzzing alerts on my cell phone or telling the kids, be quiet, I need to hear your mom. How much more so should I do that when God is speaking to me? What we do with our bodies while God is speaking reflects or affects what's happening in our souls. So may we give God the full honor, attention, and adoration that he deserves as we strive to hear the word of the Lord this year, may our hearing be more than just a mental exercise. May it involve the whole worshiper, every part of us. Um, I'm going to stop here today, pick up the rest of the passage next week, but I want to end this sermon with a request. Here it is. I'm asking you for your sake and for the sake of all the people that God has put in your life, I'm asking you to commit yourself to intentionally and attentively hearing the word of God this year.
Here's my blueprint. Demand the word for and from yourself. Recognize that it is written to and for you. Make your ears hear. Make your ears attentive to hear God's commands for your life. Prepare a time, a place, and plan for that to happen. Otherwise, it won't. And commit to hear him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But if you're going to do that, do so with the right frame of mind. And here it is. We don't read the Bible. We don't hear God's word to earn his love. It's the bad news. You can't earn God's love even if you try. You want to earn God's love? Good luck. There's nothing you can do to earn it. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. You can't because you don't need to. He cannot possibly love you more than he already does. He proved it on the cross. Um, So we don't read the Bible to earn God's love. We read the Bible to hear, to understand, and to experience just how long, just how wide, just how deep the love of Christ for us already is. And then from there, we read the Bible to understand how to flourish in that love, what it looks like to flourish in that love, and to understand how we can use our love to express it to God and neighbor through all that we think and say and do. Last quote, and then I'm praying. John Dagg, old theologian. Uh, When we read the scriptures, we should realize that God speaks to us. And when we suffer it to lie neglected, which is just an old and fancy way to say, when we don't read the scriptures, we should remember that we are refusing to listen to God. So let's commit to be a people of the book. Let's commit to hearing the word of God this year and trusting that it will change us. Uh, Amen? Let's pray.